One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Turning Leaves, a special bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas and I'm joined by Alex Clark. Now, as our regular listeners will know, we talk about books a lot on our podcast. Not surprising, since it's the Times Literary Supplement and books are our thing. But we also like to talk about gardens, what we're growing or failing to grow, what we've seen and what we've read. And we noticed that our listeners seem to like it too and would pitch in with stories of their own troubles or triumphs. So... Welcome to Turning Leaves, where we bring the two together. How wonderful, we thought, to talk and think about books and gardens with experts and distinguished practitioners from both worlds, and ideally they would be in dialogue and have some shared stories or experiences. But who could we possibly ask to join us? Well, we've struck gold on our very first outing because we are thrilled and delighted to have with us today the wonderful novelist and critic Margaret Drabble, and the multi-award-winning garden designer and broadcaster, Joe Swift. And they just happen to be mother and son. Welcome, Margaret and Joe. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We wanted to ask, to begin with, this might sound, I think this might sound like a cheeky question. It's absolutely not supposed to be. Whether either of you consider what you do as a profession, I mean, obviously it is a profession, we're not saying it isn't, but do you think of it as a profession or a vocation, something that you love that you've devoted your lives to, or, you know, is it a way to pay the bills? How do you see it and think about it? I think of it as both a vocation and a profession. I kind of stumbled into it vocationally in that I didn't expect to earn anything at all from my first novel. But of course, when you do begin to make money, you become professional and you plan your career a bit better. So I think a vocation, it remains, but a profession it turned into. It's a passion, it's a vocation, it's definitely a profession, no doubt about it, because I have clients and I have, you know, team of landscapers and and guys that we have to support and employ. And so there is a business side to it, but there's also obviously the passion of designing a garden and designing a garden for others and not only for yourself. So I think it crosses all of those things as well. 
I mean, if only the rest of us could, you know, get somewhere towards that. I was just wondering, because my guess is, that's why we wanted to ask, that it started as a passion, you know, that you love doing the thing, and then you find a way that you can do it within your life. But that wasn't what you started out doing, was it, Margaret? No, not at all. I did have a, I felt, a vocational aptitude to become an actress and go on stage. But that was frustrated by various things, including children and my husband's career, and then I discovered that I loved writing and my first novel was published when I was very young. And so what became a kind of escape and a real love of writing turned into a way of earning my living. But never had I expected that it would keep me you know, so well. And nor did I think that it would spread in so many different directions. I mean, novels are the centre of my career, but I've also so much enjoyed reviewing and going to festivals and generally leading a bit of the literary life which is quite lonely but festivals make it more sociable. Those moments when you can come together with I'd love the way that you describe almost being sort of ambushed by becoming a novelist at the very beginning not expecting it to go anywhere but obviously that first novel felt like it was something you had to do you really wanted to do the acting was sort of momentarily perhaps you thought to one side but the novel found its way through the novel really was keeping myself company and I never expected to finish it and I do remember distinctly kind of counting the words because people you know told you a novel had to be certain length and I thought oh well I've reached 60,000 words I can now put an ending on it (laughs) it was very inept and unprofessional at that stage but then I got a much better sense of the shape of what I was doing and the purpose of what I was That first novel was very, very accidental. And Joe, were you always interested in gardening? Is it something you did or were interested in from when you were young or is that something that sort of came along and ambushed you? When I left school, I was an art school dropout and I was a bass player in a band and that's what I wanted to do. But the band split up, so I had to find something to do. And so I, I just started working with a local gardening company you know, landscaping, literally labouring, mixing up the cement for the bricklayers and the pavers and, you know, a lot of hard graft. And then I went into the the gardening side of things, maintenance gardening and dealing with plants. But then if I look before that, you know, both my grandparents had gardens. I didn't garden in them, but I spent time in them. And we lived on the edge of Hampstead Heath. So I was always, even though we lived in London, I was very always outdoors, always connected with nature and sort of free range kids without mobile phones. So I don't quite know where it came from, but I know that I didn't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be a garden designer or I want to be a landscape gardener or I want to be a gardener. It was like, I need to get a job now. And that's where it all started. And it just kept my interest going. And then it turned into a passion. And then I realized I could become a garden designer. I could study garden design and actually bring all my my sort of creative skills to it and go my own way with it, I guess. What was your sort of memory of your garden growing up? What was it as a space, you know, that you spent time in and what do you sort of remember your your mum doing in it? Well, it was a lovely little girl. I mean, we backed onto Keats Grove. So we backed onto Keats House and it was a really nice you know, part of London, very green. Uh, and it was a sort of cottagey garden. I feel very sorry for mum, actually, because me and my brother used to just kick a football you know we played a lot of football and we just trashed it really with the football <laughs> and then you had a bit of landscaping done I had life there and I did some work on it as well actually when I, be, I became a bit you know quite handy 
but it was a nice little, I don't know, maybe sort of 50 foot, it's roughly the size of my garden in London, 50 foot by 20 foot, an apple tree and lilac, quite cottagey. It was, it was very pretty garden. Joe yeah. kept rabbits, which were less than pretty, because yeah. he had a big rabbit run in the middle of the well, lawn. It started off as a very small rabbit collection, yeah. but as we found out, they breed quite quickly in London. Yeah, absolutely. Apparently, that's a thing about rabbits. They've <laughs> had a lot of rabbits. <laughs> yeah, so the rabbits took over. You've put me in mind completely, Joe, of my husband being one of six and with a father who was a very keen gardener in a possibly much smaller space as they were little, just remembers his father just right. My, my good peony rose was all he ever said as the balls whizzed past. My father was a very keen gardener and their last house was in um, Suffolk. And they had a big garden of a rather old fashioned nature. But Joe did love to play golf. My mother's last words were, don't hit towards the house, then crash through the double glazing. Oh. That was Joe's. Joe was a great garden destroyer when he was young. Well, I was, yeah. I teed it up. All they had was a putter, and I teed this ball up on a sort of, you know, a, a molehill or something, and I managed to get it airborne. I was really pleased with myself until it careered. It was a, yeah, a slice, I think they call it, straight into the window. So you did hit it towards the house? I did hit, yeah, well, I didn't, but it just ended up towards the house because it was so such a bad shot. But I just remember, I do remember one moment in London in our garden because mum got some guys into to lay a patio and I'd grown an apple tree from seed and it was now about sort of six inches tall. And that was my, I remember being very, very pleased with myself, a sort of, you know, pit from an, an apple. And they just came and stuck the whole thing. I came back from school one day and it disappeared. So, yeah, I learned about... Oh, a hard lesson early. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> We were going to ask you as well about fashions in gardening. I mean, in, in writing about it in novels and on fiction, I suppose, and in gardens, I was struck, Margaret, when I was rereading Pattern in the Carpet, and you're quite specific about particular gardens there, and you talk about what was growing in the garden of Joyce, your aunt's friend. And you say crocuses, daffodils, tulips, dahlias, begonias, scarlet runners, courgettes, carrots, broad beans, beetroots, potatoes, tomatoes could be in any, still be in any well-tended kitchen garden now, apart from maybe the begonias. Have you noticed sort of fashions going in and out, both writing about it and actually doing it? Joyce's garden was a perfect cottage garden. She had a per she's still there, still gardening in her 90s. And it was just the perfect cottage garden. But it's interesting you mentioned begonias because I never quite liked begonias and I never quite liked calceolarias. And there's a wonderful sentence in an Angus Wilson book where he mentions the vulgar calceolaria, which is a wonderful turn of phrase. Mm. So I've always been aware that certain plants and flowers are not very nice. And I think my son, Joe, doesn't even like geraniums, which I do very much no, like. that's not true. They're so easy to grow, <laughs> Joe. They're very good plants. No, I, I, Mom, I, I, I like a geranium. Yeah, you're rude about it. <laughs> are we picking up on occasional tensions over geraniums, I wonder, between mother and son? This is all new to me. I didn't know. <laughs> But we're talking hardy geraniums. No, you're talking pelagonians. Pelagonians. I like a pelagonium. Lovely in the Mediterranean. Or on well, there, a... you, there you go. He thinks they're out of place. I like a bit of colour in the garden, though I do also have phases. I bought some black grasses once, and I think they're still pottering on somewhere because I thought black was very smart. Yeah. But um, it's not really. I think colour is better. Green is better than black. Well, I mean, green's the best colour going, really. I got some of those, but I thought after a while it looked a bit like a massive spider. 
in my garden, which I wasn't happy about. They're not all that attractive. No, not really. They're not actually a grass either. They're at all black mundo. And they've got the best name, though, Ophia pogren planiscapus nigrescens. How did you know that, Jay? Because I know this sort of stuff. Your little black cat, Zeus, used to come and sit in the black, whatever they're called, grasses. And she looked very nice in the black flower bed. Yeah, no one really plants them anymore. Well, we talk about fashions. There was a big fashion for them in a pot. And they look great when they're frosted in the winter. They can look really cool. But they're out of fashion now. Yeah. What's really in fashion, Jay, at the moment in terms of flowers? Well, it's not so much flowers. It's more sort of creating habitats and it's it's more, you know, gardening with nature and the whole sustainability thing. And then, you, you know, you are trying to create a sort of landscape or a, or a garden. But, I mean, you've got to be really careful of fashions in garden because by the time the garden's matured, it's out of fashion. If you go down the sort of thematic route, like a Mediterranean garden, mm. a Japanese garden, or this, that, and the other garden. So youngsters are gardening with nature it's sort of anything goes really but it is about wildlife and nature and that natural look rather than a sort of super hyper formal or thematic look I guess um, which I think is a really good thing actually. But when you did our garden here Joe you put a lot of old tree trunks down at the bottom of the garden on the principle that they would be a nice habitat for yeah. insects and things and they've now kind of melted into the earth, but I guess that's what they were meant to do. But they, they had, you had these great planks of rotting wood at the end of the garden, which you thought was just the thing. Yeah, bug hotels. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's a lot easier than taking them out through the house and getting rid of them as well. <laughs> you know, so um, it's called energy saving as well. But no, I think, I think yeah, that that's where gardens have gone. But you can still make them look great and also get lots of interest you know, year round, just layering the planting. But I think people are looking for you know plants that colonize and and naturally grow together and look great together. Yeah, I think that's where it's all going at the moment. Not to obviously overload you with my own gardening woes, but I am finding that I've got lots of plants that are very, you know, they are attracting bees and bugs and butterflies, and that's great. Yeah. But where I'm attempting to go full sort of wildlife. Wildflower seeds and wildflower meadows are much harder than you think they are. You can't just throw the seeds down and then there's a beautiful meadow. It's much mm. harder than that, isn't it? Well, it is because most people's garden soil is too rich. These wildflower meadows, they thrive on poor soil. So you, so you have to prep a lot. Yeah, you've got to prep it a lot. Or you've got to deplete the fertility of the soil. So, you know, if you're mowing the grass or taking, you've got to take everything away so it doesn't feed back into the soil and it can take years. It, it will take, you know, a, a lifetime. Or you, know, you take that rich soil away and get the subsoil on the top. And this is now turning to a garden clinic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm really sorry. There, no, but there are ways of getting that look, not using necessarily wild plants or mixing wild plants in with garden plants and just getting that sort of mass planting look at the same time without it actually being a natural wildflower meadow in the middle of Hackney. This is exactly the problem because I have to say, secretly, this is what I've been discovering, but I thought that you might say, oh, yeah, but there's a quick way around that, Alex. All you need to do is, but you didn't. Never mind. I've learned my lesson. Very rarely happens, I found. Get us back on track, Lucy. Partly leading on from that, because what Joe was saying about natural gardening and a kind of sustainability. We've been talking a lot about climate crisis and, and things on the podcast, about how it's come into writing it's come into fiction and non-fiction, and it must have come into domestic gardens as well in a big way. Margaret, we were, both of uh, me and Alex have read The Dark Flood Rises again recently, 
and there's a there's an amazing sort of balance there between kind of global climate change and then some small domestic gardens and the the sort of precarity of it. Do you feel that that's got into your writing? I think it's got into many people's work now. Writing is full of environmental issues, sometimes more prominently than others. I mean, my, my novel, The Dark Flood Rises, was written during the Somerset floods, the Somerset levels, which I travelled through a lot. Mm. And it was extreme, they're extremely beautiful when flooded, but it's obviously a growing problem. And our house in Somerset is very near the sea. It never actually floods because it's slightly above the bank, but things around it flood all the time. And I just found the metaphor of sort of flooding and old age, all these things seem to fit together. In fact, people sometimes say to me, I'm afraid I didn't dare read your book called The Dark Flood Rises <laughs> because it's too near the truth. Well, I found it a very strangely, you know, despite all that, because there is there is a lot of serious material in it, not all of it immediately cheerful. I think it's an optimistic book in some ways, realistic, but maybe optimistic because it's realistic. Well, I think it was about people making the best of their lives and about how people grow old in completely different ways and the planet grows old in a different way too. I was sitting next to somebody yesterday who told me that there will be another ice age in about 10,000 years. I find that kind of perspective very comforting. <laughs> yes, we don't need, don't need to worry about that one right now, maybe. But it will come. Yeah, yeah. And Joe, you must have seen lots of effects. You must be dealing with effects of climate change as you design and work and talk and write about it. Yeah. You know, you're trying to sort of second guess what's going to happen, but it's impossible, really. I mean, everything's so site specific. So every garden's different, the soil, the aspect, you know, the local climate. And then you don't quite know, where, you know, whether it's going to be a very wet winter or an incredibly dry summer. I think it's extremities that we're trying to, you know, counterbalance. And when we're planting stuff, you're putting in sort of tough plants that you know will, especially when you're designing for a client, and then they can then add depth to it. But no, it, it's certainly, you know, we don't want to start putting in lots of stuff that needs high maintenance, needs lots of watering, lots of feeding uh, and all that sort of stuff. So we try definitely these days to work with things that can pretty much manage themselves and knit together nicely and sort of suppress weeds and, and look great. I mean, there is obviously an aesthetic, but I'm always thinking of butterflies and bees and insects and scented plants. And then these just add lots and lots of interesting layers to a garden when you're sitting in a space. That's what you want it to feel completely alive. And so it all comes together, really. There is a big push on sustainability. But, you know, mm. the, the amount of energy, it's like these flower shows, you know, frankly, you know, Chelsea Flower Show, Hampton Court, Town Park, the one I've been filming them for for decades now and you know there is a lot of talk about sustainability but the amount of energy it takes to put on a show that lasts a week yeah. and then it's taken away at the end of the week you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy frankly going on there as well and I'm very aware of it and it's the same with building a garden you know often you you know you've got to get all the guys on site you've got to you know get them there you've got to get all the material there. there's usually a lot of concrete being used there's some machinery being used blah 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 you know for a sustainability aspect probably the best thing to do is just completely leave it alone <laughs> Yes. But it's not going to make the best garden, necessarily. Yes. So. It does strike me that both of you, having been initially attracted to careers or, you know, to activities that were about performance, you know, being in a band, being an actor, they both take lots of time and preparation, but there is a sort of 
instant gratification feedback loop for both of them. You are performing in front of an audience a lot of the time, but you now both you do jobs where time is an incredibly important factor. Things have to sort of compost literally in a garden, but also, you know, sort of intellectually, aesthetically in, in writing. Time is absolutely vital to both of your both of your working lives, isn't it? Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I, the performance aspect. Now, Joe carries on in his TV appearances with his literally a performance aspect. And I suppose I used to get quite a lot of fun of going to festivals and giving a, a lecture. I've never been at all nervous about standing up on a platform and doing my thing. I used to enjoy it. But it's absolutely true that the real work is going on behind the scenes. It's when you're thinking, you're brooding, everything is maturing in your mind. And so there are, there are different activities going on at the same, different layers of activity. And now I don't do so many performances, well, partly because of COVID, everything stopped for two or three years. And so I've been more thrown in on my own thoughts than I frankly like. I, I would like to be able to get out more and do more of the outward side of life, but it, constraints come over you and, and I'm not able to do as much as that. But I would like to say one thing about the outdoor garden, which I suppose is unsustainable now, and I'd like to ask Joe about this. My very favourite gardens when I was young were water gardens. When I saw the Villa d'Este, I nearly fainted with delight. And gardens like which are huge, spectacular water displays move me so much. Versailles is a kind of rather boring example, but the Villa d'Este is just utterly enchanting. Castle Howard, gardens with fountains and waterways running through them. And I guess that that is going to be unsustainable, Joe, is that right? Well, it all depends on the source of the water, whether you know, you've, got, you've got a source of water or you may have got a borehole on site. It's the, the problem with water is the engineering and the, uh, the technical side of it and, and obviously the supply of water. But yeah, you don't want a water feature that's going to be full in the winter or a pond that's going to be full in the winter and dry in the summer. So it's whether you can find, and there are areas of the UK that are actually always wet, you know. Like the floodplains. Yeah, yeah, like where Monty is in Herefordshire, you know, he's always, there's always water available there. Um, yeah, so it's it does need to be considered, you know, where that water's coming from. But I agree, I mean, well, I'm doing one of a big project at the moment um, in uh, North London with a lot of water there. And yeah, you can also rain, harvest rainwater, you know, from, from your roofs and, um, from your garage roofs and it's all about diverting it into tanks and stuff like that but it, yeah, it gets expensive but it can be done and yeah I mean last summer was a real shocker wasn't it it was so dry unbelievably dry but I do love a water garden as well yeah it makes me think that I don't know if this is spurious just tell me if you think this is a spurious link between the two but I've thought about the fact that in gardening and in particularly fiction what you're doing is you're creating and then controlling an environment definitely yeah yeah and you have different levels of control presumably yeah we were talking about this earlier actually i mean you yeah i mean we're we both i remember mum saying that you know offering people advice years ago when i was a kid you know how do i write a novel well the first thing you do is sit down and start writing you, you are you and it's like people say to me how do i start designing a garden and you have to just sit down and start drawing you have to start somewhere so that you can then you've got something to build on even if it's a mistake you've at least started 
And then you've got the constraints here, you've got the structure. I mean, in the garden, you've got the structure, you've got the site, you've got the budget, you've got the, the capabilities. And within a novel, I'm guessing, you know, you've got to have a very fixed structure as well. And then there's the narrative. And it... Yeah, yeah, but Joe, I said to you earlier, in fact, if you feel that within the shape of one novel, you haven't quite finished your storyline, you can actually write a sequel, which I did at one point. I wrote a trilogy, which certainly wasn't planned as a trilogy. But then Joe said to me, yeah, but on a parallel, you can just buy the garden next door and start gardening <laughs> next door. No, but you're borrowing That'd be nice. or you're borrowing a landscape. Yeah. And, you know, well, borrowing the view. Borrowing the view is a subject that has always fascinated me. The idea of the ha-ha and where you yeah. suddenly see a huge view, which isn't really yours, but yeah. you've managed to co-opt it well, into your garden. A really good garden will that has a view will always, you know, it has, it's the context, is that sense of place is is all, you know, it's about that, you know, it has to work with that view. It has to sit comfortably with it and, you know, utilize it. But I think there are a lot of similarities. I think the thing is that when a book's finished, it's complete and a garden, it goes on. Because when you finish mm. a garden, the, the the design and the build and the planting of it, that's the beginning of the garden. And so you're working in with time, you're working with the fourth dimension of time uh, and you never quite know where it's going to end up. It's who's going to garden it, how plants are going to grow, how big, you know, you've got an idea of where it's going to end up, obviously. But that's what I love about it as well. Mm. But, but I think there are quite a lot of similarities in the creativity. I mean, I've got to the stage where I'm quite instinctive in my design now because I go into a garden and I know what's going to work. I know what's not going to work. I know where the key views are. I know what the palette of plants might look like. And it's a case of putting all those things together. It's, it's a craft and it's really enjoyable, you know, when you get to that level. And I'm guessing when you start a book, you've already got the key characters and the sort of the, yeah. the mood and the feel and where you're going with it. You've got your theme and your subject, which is the same as your plot or your site. Yeah. And then you plant it with ideas and characters and and you develop them. I think that's absolutely true. There's a is a, a kind of comparable process going mm, on. Mm. Yeah. But a novel doesn't mature, it stays stuck in time. Yeah. Unlike your gardens. And of course now we're trying to rewrite people's novels. And I met somebody the other day who was totally pleased that he'd rewritten his own novel. And he said, <laughs> my second version is much better than the first. Now I don't see the point of doing that. Because I think once a book is finished with its faults and all, it represents the time when you wrote it and the age that you were when you did write it. And so it is as though it's a time capsule. I mean, a novel I wrote while I was expecting Joe when he was unborn was The Millstone. And mm -hmm. that is a novel absolutely of its time. And I remember going into the nursing home where Joe was born and receiving the jacket of the millstone, which was sent to me, Quentin Blake jacket. And that just seemed absolutely perfect that here was this baby that had just been born and there was the beautiful Quentin Blake jacket of the pregnant woman on the millstone. It all seemed to fit together very, very well. Mm. And Margaret, what do you think about that book now then? You're talking about it being a time capsule. That's obviously different. I mean, it's obviously true for readers, but very different when you've created something do you go back to your work on a kind of page by page level and consider it only when I'm asked to I never reread things just for the sake of seeing what's in them but if I'm asked a question I do go back and look and sometimes I'm wrong I've misremembered it's weird I mean I've always written very much about the times I'm living in and I've tended to write about people of my own age so my characters have grown older with me so it's as though 
they are a sort of picture of social history and they mm. can't be anything else because I was there when I was observing it. But it's embarrassing when you look back and you find you've used words that you wouldn't now use, and not because of political correctness, but because of sensitivity and jokes you wouldn't make now, things you wouldn't think. But there they are, and that's the way they are. But with a garden, things grow in a completely different way, unless they're artificially preserved, like Versailles. I well, that's the concern, mm. I think, with a garden. You know, it can be the, sort of the kiss of death of a garden if you're trying to create a time capsule. Because mm. a time capsule in the garden, it, it will date quite quickly. And, you know, if you go to somewhere like Great Dixter, where they're constantly changing things and it's evolving, and Fergus, who's taken it over, has had the, has taken the mantle. Where you go to a National Trust garden sometimes, I'm not, I'm not slagging off the National Trust, but, you know, or even Sissinghurst. I remember talking to um, Sarah Raven, who, yeah. who inherited Sissinghurst. Yeah. Well, he's very involved in Sissinghurst. And... You know, do you just set it in aspic and do you try and keep it exactly how it was? Or, no, that's not a garden. I mean, no, gardens but, don't but, work like that. But, Joe, mm. you and I both love Penwood. And Penwood has got an escaped garden. Mm. And it has a timeless quality, but it was created at a certain point. But I don't want Penwood to change too much because it is very much of its time and it belongs to the Kenwood house and the views and the and the little lake and the birds and Johnson's summer house was vandalized and has gone, but there's the Henry Moore in the garden, which aren't of the period, but everything is a harmonious whole. I wouldn't want them to dig all that up. No, 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 no. It's about being sensitive. No, and I totally agree. That's got a very strong character. And why would you want to change it? But they have cut back those I was up there last year, they cut those rose engines really hard back as the camellias, because it needs maintaining. But no, they're not going to do anything radical. Is that a garden? I mean, that's a landscape. That's a public park, really. But yeah, it's, oh, it's tricky, but you can't, like this, we've got to maintain this exactly how it is. And when those Henry Moores went in, okay, you know, that would have been a radical thing to do. And people protested. And people would have protested, but it works beautifully. And so it's that intervention, I guess, has to just be really spot on. Mm. But I think normally with gardens, they do progress and they, you know, they will develop over time and they will be changed and uh, as opposed to, you know, your, the millstone, which will never be changed. Hopefully. No, no, because it is a spotlight on a certain period of yeah. Um, history. Yeah. It's a different thing. Yeah. It is, Margaret, but it's also a book that I think you can read now and see an extraordinarily sort of enduring portrait of a woman coming into her own voice. I mean, it's not that its specifics might be dated, but much like a, you know, a wonderful garden, that the core of it doesn't feel like it sort of belongs to another time in the sense that it's relevant. We watched a movie the other day of it. And, oh, uh, amazing. Because I didn't even know there was a movie of it. And it's, it was, quite, it's quite good. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was great. And it felt very relevant. I thought it felt very relevant. Isn't it a with... wonderful film? And it's obviously it wasn't... Margaret, what's your, your sort of memory of that film? It's not called The Millstone, is it? No, it was given various titles, mm. not very happy. Mind you, The Millstone is a rather gloomy title, so it's a very <laughs> odd title. But, but I have very happy memories of that film because the director was somebody I knew at Cambridge, Ian McKellen, who is a good friend, was in it. Eleanor Braun, another dear friend, was in it. And so it was very much an extension of my acting life. That's what it was. It was as though on screen, 
this was a low budget movie, if ever there was one. But when I watched it and then saw it again recently, I saw it at the um, BFI and then I saw it on telly the other night completely by accident. It's, it is like stepping back into that world of theatre people and friends and Ian McKellen with his Scotty dog sitting in Regent's Park. It was just so evocative of a moment in time. Beautiful. We should say for our, our listeners it's uh, who might want to go and see it out, I think it's a wonderful novel, but it was filmed under the title A Touch of Love, wasn't it? And it's available on YouTube. I watched it straight out of YouTube. It's on YouTube. Mm. The whole the whole movie. Yeah. Wonders of the modern world, you see. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, I have to go back like tiny bit. I'm just really imagining what it's to be like. This is not given to many people to know that your mother was creating a work of fiction as you were also being created. That's special, isn't it? Well, my mum was always sort of locked away in a, you know, all you could hear was a typewriter just banging away, you know, and, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a lively household and we would try and disturb mum as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just amazed that, you know, you were doing that. I mean, you know, and then, yeah, in the 70s, you were really busy. I mean, you were sort of like, you were being celebrated, you know, you were very successful. And it was uh, it was great. And people would be popping around to the house all the time. Yeah. All these, you know, yeah, people like, yeah, Eleanor and uh, Ian McKellen. And, a very, uh, very big Nels Dunn. And I... people would always be coming, always lively. I mean, proper 60s, swinging 60s and 70s. I take that. exception to his phrase that I was locked away. I never <laughs> locked the door. They were always running around and interfering. And I remember very well yeah, when that I must have been impossible. It was impossible. I, I Working couldn't... conditions were terrible. When I died in the garden, <laughs> I put earplugs in. I said, I cannot... That I can't cope with any distraction whatsoever, and oh. you were constantly being distracted. I, I just hammered away. I did hammer away, and I made a terrible noise on the old manual typewriter. But um, there was always something else going on in the house, or almost always. 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 Yes. Yeah. There is a distinction, isn't there, Margaret? Between obviously your sort of London life and your Somerset life, and in the latter, I mean, the work went into the garden, didn't it? You know, you work from a shed. I had a very nice garden house built by a friend of Joe's right at the end of the garden. And I did write two or three novels there. And now I can't get to the country so often. And also, since electricity became so important to my writing life, I did have electrics in my garden house to begin with in my garden study. But the mice kept chewing through it. So I, it was a question of sort of either kind of running back to charge a battery. So I don't write so much there as I used to do, but it is still looking absolutely wonderful. It's in very good condition because Joe's friend built it very well. <laughs> and the view down that garden, now Joe has just re-landscaped that view. I haven't even seen it since it was done, but the view down this very, very long, thin garden by the sea, he landscaped it so that some of the plants, I don't know how, it, he must have envisaged this, there were waves of shrubbery that looked just like white waves on the sea and grasses growing. What were these big white bushes you have? They're absolutely one silvery grey white and they just looked like an unfolding waves and there's the sea just next to it. it was, it's very, very beautiful. And when you're feeling housebound, as I sometimes am, just sit at the window and look at it. It's mm. wonderful. 
But also, yeah, whoever maintains your hedges is so amazing. Oh, our gardener there, who does the hedges, he has cut They're amazingly the organic shape. into a serpentine. I mean, I say to him, it, it's better than, um, God, what's that place that, oh dear, the National Trust Garden with those amazing yew trees on the way to Bullock. Anyway, it looks better than any of those scopiographical miracles because he just carves it into a sea, it's a sea serpent by the sea. Yeah, yeah. And people stop and look at it and admire it. And I heard one woman saying, oh, that's a very odd hedge. And the other one said, well, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it looks okay. so well looked after and beautiful. beautiful. Well, talk about borrowing the view. That's like the ultimate yes, view to yes. No, just a square hedge wouldn't have worked at all because you're looking out onto the beach and then the sea and you know, it's just... It's a beautiful sculptural thing in itself, and it keeps yeah. changing. It's it's always slightly changing, of course, which is Montacute is the house I was thinking uh, of. Yeah. Oh I, yes, I did say to Dean, your hedge is better than Montacute, and he, he's very proud of it. Oh goodness! <laughs> I wanted to ask quite a sort of practical question from the point of view that Joe, you're a garden designer and broadcaster, but you are also a writer of newspaper columns and books, and of course, it's a different kind of writing, but. Do you or have you felt your mother's influence? Have you felt Margaret's influence as a writer? Are there things you feel you should or shouldn't do? And also, Margaret, do you feel the same about gardening? Do you feel that there are things you should or shouldn't do according to, to Joe's work? Well, I feel I don't look after my gardens well enough, but I'm too old to bother about that now. But um, I do ask Joe's advice a lot about the gardens. And he ticks me off if certain things haven't been looked after properly. So he keeps an eye on. Oh, I just look in every now and then. Yeah, yeah, you do. No, you do. He's been very, very good about it. My dad was an actor. You know, my mum's a writer. And, and it's all about characters. And my work is all about, sorry, my favourite subject, me, you know. <laughs> uh, it's me being myself and my passion for gardening. So I have a voice and I'm very light. So when I write, I have a voice because people might know me from the TV or whatever. And also it's all very often practical advice, but it's uh, hopefully inspirational and trying to get people to grow stuff and, and why they should grow stuff, and but how to grow certain plants or how to design or how to approach design. So it's all, it's all, it's a very different uh, type of writing, I would say. But I have got to say, you know, when I first started writing for The Independent and I write for The Times and stuff, you know, I used to read all the edits that they had done and I learned a lot from that. And now they don't edit me so much, so I must be doing a better job. <laughs> but I, as a kid, I was not, I was the least literary kid in the whole family. I mean, Becky, my sister, was very literary and my brother was very academic. So I just spent all the time outdoors, you know, running around, getting away from um, books, really. <laughs> that's the truth. And that's where I found my love of nature. And that's why I'm a very practical person. I like building stuff. I like, like seeing stuff, you know, rather than just a sort of piece of paper going from one side of a desk to another. I love to see a garden come together or buildings come together or, you know, that visual aspect. And so with my writing, I try and get my personality into it, I think. Really, and it's a very different format, you know. I mean, at times it's like six, seven hundred yeah. words a week, very tight. So it's very different. But in the back of my mind, I have got my mum sort of marking, yeah, marking my homework a bit. Oh, he kept his literary <laughs> talents very, very quiet. I mean, he concealed them. And when he started publishing, I was frankly astonished. I thought, oh, good heavens, he sat, he sat down and written several hundred no, words. People are actually paying him for I that. Was, <laughs> I was very impressed. But he did actually, his first writing skills were shown when he wrote me very nice letters 
from Israel when he was working on a kibbutz. Yeah. Do you remember that? And I think they made you write home. Like no, when... they didn't make me write home. <laughs> well, you did write home, and I thought, good God, here's a letter. No, they made Jane. me go to work in the fish farms and the date farms. That's what they made me do, but they in didn't make me do any writing. You voluntarily wrote me those very nice letters. Yeah, well, that was it. We didn't have texts and faxes. Well, we probably had a fax, but we didn't have emails and everything, and yeah. Well, and I if should... I didn't write to you, I wouldn't get one back. That's true. We did write to each other, but that mm. seems a very old-fashioned thing to do. It was now. nice, probably. Yes, it was nice, yes. But, you know, I remember at school being taught how to write a letter. You know. Taught how to write <laughs> we a letter. We were taught how to write a letter yeah. and all that sort of, you know, grammar. And uh, Nobody does that now. No, I don't think people do write letters anymore, then. No. no, probably not. You've still got the letters, haven't you, Margaret? They're in Cambridge University Library. Oh, oh there you go. I, I, oh, still, <laughs> I started to clear things out. I knew I was on the verge of throwing all sorts of things away. And I deposited a few years ago quite a lot of correspondence from distinguished people like Joe Swift and Doris, <laughs> Angus Wallace and Doris Lessing, you know, all these people. So they're all being safely looked after in the basement at Cambridge University Library. Because otherwise I know that a terrible fit would have come over me and I'd have started throwing out. Oh, I better look for the ones you wrote to me then. I've got them somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. I wanted to just, I know you just now, Joe, you've just said that you spent your time running away from books, though you seem to have kind of run back towards them. But I wanted to ask if either of you have a a favourite garden in literature. It doesn't even have to be in literature, but a sort of garden of the imagination, perhaps. Where the wild things are, the kids' books. Oh, yeah. You know, yes. that was me, you know, <laughs> trying to, climbing out the window. And the sort of the wildness of nature and the beast. I just love that book and the way it just can't, you know, the climbers come into his bedroom mm. and that imagination. And so my kids had that book, obviously. And now I'm a grandfather. Uh, my granddaughter's going to get it as well. But I just love the pictures and, and the naughtiness. Is yeah, a naughty the rumpus. Book. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book. But otherwise, mm. like, there's not that many books in literature that stand out to me but I bet you no, no not not so much really I never read The Secret Garden when I was a child and I think I began to be very much aware of gardens the Garden of Eden in Paradise Lost had a tremendous impact on me when I was a schoolgirl. still I've always been fascinated by the idea that gardens even in the state of nature the Garden of Eden they require a lot of work. They don't just look nice by themselves. And I just found that the concept of Adam and Eve working in the Garden of Eden, I think that was one of my primal images of gardens. It's a very, very fruitful. It's also quite a sexual garden. I mean, it's full of bosky bars and gushing water and hairy trees. And I just loved all that. So that was, I think, one of my primal images of gardens and I must have been 16 when I read that I can't think of anything I read as a child that charmed me totally as the secret garden might have done had I ever come across it which I didn't mm, mm. gosh from from paradise lost to where the wild things are is a wonderful literary <laughs> that'll do it yeah they're, sure they're both pretty saying. good <laughs> I, I don't know if the, where the wild things are is that is that CLS worthy Yes, in fact, we've yeah, yeah, yeah. We've definitely we've definitely written about it, and actually, where the wild things are, it's it's there's all sorts of other versions of it. There's a there there's a film of it, which I'm not sure whether we review, but there's an opera of it. There's all. I watched the film. I remember the film. I thought, no, that's going to ruin. No, it. I didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't either. I was worried about that. But yeah. um, 
but yeah, no, no, it's very much um, Morris Sendak is very much, very much appreciated by the TLS. Um, listen, I feel like we've taken up lots of your time, and we would love to talk to you for hours more, but we have to let you go and and write books and and make gardens. Um, I think Joe probably knows that all it would be if we carried on, it would just be me saying, and then what will I do in the southwest? Corner? <laughs> yes. I've got yeah. nothing it's thriving. Sort of shady there. Area. What I'm, about? Yeah. Well, well actually, then... yeah, I, I do get a lot. I, yeah, it's funny because yeah, I mean, when I was young and landscaping and gardening, no one really wanted. A lockdown was amazing. So my phone got red hot. Yes, all we're all saying. By suddenly, the way. All my friends who so who got a little patch of lawn out the back with you know and suddenly said, Oh, I'm gonna start digging for victory. Right, how do I build a rose bed? What do I plant? And all that sort of stuff. Uh and yeah, you get to a certain age and you suddenly become quite useful. Uh, but it's a bit <laughs> like being a, a sort of, I don't know, an like a doctor. Or a doctor or something at yeah, a drink <laughs> yeah. party where yeah, people yeah. just talk to you about their garden. All I really want to talk about is football. <laughs> Well, as yeah, we I said, we're gonna, before, we're gonna that's to, another we're gonna podcast. Have to talk about football on uh, exactly on yeah. another another yeah. podcast, Joe. We, we definitely will. That's the next spin-off. Um, but until then, we just want to say thank you very much to both of you for oh, joining wonderful. us and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that was the first edition of Turning Leaves. And Lucy, I enjoyed it so much. But I have to ask you, do you think we've got away with turning our enthusiasm into actual work? Do you think we've managed to see under the radar? <laughs> not, not now you've said it, Alex. <laughs> I don't think I've blown it. Yeah. Oh, God, I hope the higher-ups aren't listening. I'm afraid you've blown it. But actually, oh, we would dear. love to know what our listeners think. We certainly would. So do write to us. In fact, if you write to us at letters at the-tls.co.uk, tell us what you think, give us suggestions, tell us about your plants, your books, all of these things. Tell us who you'd like us to talk to. Mm, yeah. Then we hope that there will be lots more turning leaves. And as ever, we have been produced by the wonderful Charlotte Pardy and we will see you soon. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 